it's your boy, and welcome to episode 64 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Um, man, school's in full swing. Uh, there's like two weeks left in finals and, uh, I'm probably like most people where I just have this senioritis thing that's just coming over me and I just can't wait for school to be done. And I know, uh, a few episodes back we were talking about this whole idea of 75% and I know with only two weeks left in the semester, we're actually well past the 75% mark, but, but in some ways I, I still have that thing that I talked about, whereas once I get to the end of a project, all of a sudden things get a little bit harder. My motivation, which was formerly firing on all cylinders, starts to deplete a little bit. And it's not like I'm giving up and it's not like I'm fucking up. You know, I'm not really a self-sabotage type of person. But I think it means something that when I come to the end of things, all of a sudden, all of a sudden my confidence starts to waver. I think it says something about my self-esteem or my insecurity. It's like right when I'm on the threshold of success, I start saying, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. And I start to second guess myself a little bit. And so even though I've done well all semester, it's just harder to get started. And, um, oh, well, there's a lot of things that are coming up as I'm thinking about this one. My girlfriend, uh, left for the East coast for the next month and a half. So I'm over here on the West coast all by myself. And, you know, I'm not happy about it, but I'm also a pretty independent person. And so I'll miss her a lot. But at the same time, I'm, I'm pretty independent and uh, I thrive well on my own. And in some ways, I think I felt fine about it because I was sort of anticipating things being so busy for me for a while with the end of school, with some things that are coming up at work, and also just some personal projects I wanted to get done, or at least how I've been spending my time recently, which has, has been pretty full. Um, not that I'm doing anything active, I've really just been reading a, a shit ton. And uh, we talked about some of that stuff, but as much as I've been reading, we haven't really, we haven't really talked about it. So maybe that'll come up, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know where the fuck I was going with all that, except now that the semester's over and uh, it's time to drive, it's time to drive the nail home on the hard work I've been doing all semester, it's just a little harder to start. Oh, I see. I was thinking, because my girlfriend's gone, I thought, well, I'll just fill up my time with doing all the schoolwork that I have to do. I have to finish some projects. I have to finish some uh, homework assignments. And ultimately, I have to prepare um, for finals. Um, the math class I've been taking this semester is self-paced. And, you know, I was looking at the assignments, and I thought, you know, if I actually just kind of do a lot of math homework this week, I could actually finish the semester this weekend. Um, and like most things that we set for ourselves, whether it's training for a marathon or cleaning our apartment or, or, or whatever it is, you know, things are more manageable when you break them into tiny chunks. And so I told myself, oh, I'll just do a little bit every day and come the weekend, um, uh, I'll have finished it all easy peasy. Lemon a squeezy. <laughs> but I, of course, I, I didn't do that. And, uh, my girlfriend's been gone. And, and th I think this is, this is how I feel, which is, you know, it's not that things never get done. 
And I'm actually much better than I used to be, which was when I was younger, I was a procrastinator. And so it was the story of my life that you would have this paper due. And of course, either the night before or whatever, whenever crunch, full crunch time mode is, that's when I start to get work, uh, uh, get to work. And so things would be in a panic. And also when I was much younger, when it, when it came to school, I was like, there, I, plenty of times where I just said, fuck it, right? I turned in some half-ass work or I didn't fucking do it. You know, you wake up the morning of the test and it's just much easier to sleep in. Um, many of us know what that's like when we're younger. Okay, that's not what's happening. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I am surprised that even as an adult, even though things eventually get done, I still find that if I'm given the time to um, delay or procrastinate, that I do. Um, and I don't know why I'm surprised at that. I think it's partly because I sort of anticipated as I, as I was growing up that at some point I would look up and be, and be the perfect person I've always wanted to be. And I'm just not. So part of, I don't know, maybe this is making a mountain out of uh, out of a molehill or a whole lot of nothing. But um, this week, I you know, I did my work stuff, which is fine. But I really put off my schoolwork. I didn't do a lot of it. And so the last two days, I've just been crunching for math homework. And today I finished, so that's good. And um, I certainly have an A in the class. But um, yes, I just find at the very end of, th- at the very end of things... I fight myself. For example, I haven't returned to my synthesizer program. <laughs> I told you guys that I had done, you know, I had spent, you know, a couple months giving some serious time to teaching myself synthesis, and I've learned a lot, and so that knowledge doesn't disappear. But, you know, I had sort of set the goal of finishing the software program called Centorial, which I really recommend if you're ever interested in sort of twiddling around on synthesizers and, and kind of learning what they're all about, really. More than just pulling up presets and having cool sounds. But if you want to know how sounds are made or, or what synthesis really is. Um, and actually, even as I say that, there's some people who are really into synthesis who would still say that you probably don't know what it's all about because it is sort of fundamentally scientific and whatever. But um, but at least you get a better look under the hood than you would otherwise. So if that's something you're interested in, I do that. But uh, yes, I've spent a lot of time reading. I've been spending a lot of my free time reading. And so I'm glad that my grades have stayed good. I'm glad I'm getting everything done at work. And yet I've spent so much of my free time reading. I think I've probably read 13 books since October. And it started with, uh, I'm sort of looking over here. I see this because I have this growing stack of books that I've read. And I'm also surprised at what I'm reading. I mean, I think part of why I've been able to read so much is that I'm reading pretty light or relatively light stuff, you know. Um, I'm, I, I talked everyone's ear off about Dostoevsky and Russian literature since we started this podcast because that's what I was reading in my free time. Um, probably most of what I was thinking about. I think our last... Jeez, was it almost a year ago? Holy shit, time flies. But I remember last New Year's, we had our four-hour episode called Crime and Punishment. I think we dedicated a whole hour to to the novel Crime and Punishment or Dostoevsky. I was also listening to a lot of police interrogations at the time. But but, uh, lately, I've just been reading a lot of lighter stuff. It started with Slaughterhouse-Five, which I read three times, which is phenomenal. And then I... uh, It's hard to know the order here, but I, I know I read Fight Club... But other than that, I pretty much read, like, Stephen King. <laughs> I read Carrie, which is great. I, I started with Misery. Then I read Carrie. Then I read Night Shift. And I just finished reading 
Nightmares and oh, sorry, not Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I finished reading Different Seasons, which is a collection of four novellas, and I read one or two of them when I was younger. Um, um, before I go into that, I want to finish this one thought about what I'm reading in general. And I read um, Elmore Leonard for the first time, which has always been on my radar because Elmore Leonard was a huge influence on Quentin Tarantino. And maybe you've read a lot of Elmore Leonard. He's a very popular writer. But at least for me, Elmore Leonard, I just sort of knew through filmmaking. A lot, a lot of his novels have been turned into movies. Not very good ones. Um, but uh, you might even be surprised at what some movies are, are, are based on his works. One that was a surprise to me was 310 to Yuma. Um, and I actually wasn't familiar. I mean, I haven't, I'm not really familiar with the original. But uh, I remember seeing the remake with Russell Crowe, I believe. Um, I want to say Guy Pierce, but maybe I'm fucking making that up. But um, I remember seeing that randomly at some point around the time it came out and thinking it was actually very good. Um, but I read Rum Punch and I read Get Shorty, and both are phenomenal. And it makes perfect sense. Uh, people don't know this, but Jackie Brown, the Quentin Tarantino movie, was based off of Rum Punch. And although Jackie Brown fits relatively seamlessly into Quentin Tarantino's output. It feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie. And Quentin Tarantino was always very transparent about how much he feels he owes to Elmore Leonard. And, you know, Quentin Tarantino's always celebrated for his dialogue. And he always said, I got a lot of it from Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard. When you read Rum Punch, you realize, holy shit, like 75% of the screenplay is lifted directly from the book. And I think we mentioned this when I was reading Fight Club. And I was saying... You know, it's funny, two thoughts. It's funny that somebody gets, like, full credit on a screenplay when 75% of the dialogue is lifted from the book. And some of the best lines in the movie Fight Club come directly from the novel. And the screenplay for No Country for Old Men, which is a phenomenal movie, 75% of the dialogue in the movie is taken directly from the novel. And so, sure, you could get screenwriting credit in the sense that you know, you are you wrote the literal screenplay. You took the novel and put it in this frame structure of a screenplay. But if most of the dialogue's from the novel, it's just weird that the author of the book doesn't get screenplay credit most of the time. Um, for some reason, another idea is popping in my head, but it's because I've been reading a lot of Stephen King. I've also been seeing a lot of uh, videos on YouTube of him just talking. Um... And he was talking about The Shining. Uh, and I'm, I'm just thinking about screenplay adaptations here, but he said he originally wrote a screenplay version of The Shining. Um, he had written a couple others just as exercises. I think he turned an H.P. Lovecraft novel into a screenplay. Or maybe it was a Ray Bradbury novel. But the point is, is when he finished the novel The Shining, uh, he said, literally, he acquired the rights to the screenplay. And I thought, what the fuck? You wrote the novel. How do you acquire the rights to the screenplay? And then I just sort of thought through the Hollywood system and the publishing system, which is, I bet when he writes a book, I bet the publisher owns some percentage of the, of the copyright, right, and the intellectual property. It probably, you know, maybe at this point he owns all of it. But especially when he was starting out, I think The Shining is like his third novel as Stephen King. Um, there, there, there probably is something that has to be figured out in terms of who has the right, even though it's your novel, who has the rights to the screenplay? Maybe the publisher owns the rights to option the screenplay. Um, 
And so it was just strange that Stephen King created a screenplay of The Shining, but when Kubrick or whoever Kubrick represented or, or, you know, whatever um, production company bought the rights for The Shining, they got to decide who wrote the screenplay and it was Kubrick and somebody else. But it just seemed, doesn't that disconnect seem weird, which is you create a novel, but once you sell the movie rights, the rights to make a movie, you know, the the arbiter of who writes a screenplay now goes to the person who holds, who has purchased the movie-making rights. Maybe that's not, I mean, in some ways that sounds very intuitive once you wrap your mind around it, but there's, it's just weird to think of creativity and intellectual property that, that way. It is uh, commodified. You know, you can write the novel that a movie's based on, and yet once you sell the movie rights, just because some, even if someone uses 75% of the dialogue from the novel, the fact that they authored the screenplay means they get credit for it. Anyway, um, probably, probably didn't intend to get, <laughs> probably didn't intend to get mired in that detail. But, uh, yes, reading Stephen King, uh, read a couple of Michael Crichton novels, right? We talked about Sphere and, uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> and I read, uh, Shibumi by Trevanian, which is, uh, complete dad fantasy fiction, you know, with this sort of, uh, you know, it's funny. There's a couple points I want to make here. I think the summary point is that I'm in full fucking dad mode reading Crichtons and Kings. And, you know, I, I just feel like a fucking old man, but I'm also surprised at how much I'm enjoying it. And it's not that Crichton's great. He's not. Um, and Shibumi was not great. I mean, it was entertaining enough. Uh, and Elmore, Le- but, but there's, I think the, the distinction I'm trying to make is that you have pop- popular fiction authors like Elmore Leonard and Stephen King who get lumped in with these people, who get lumped in with Michael Crichton and Grisham um, and Tom Clancy. And as I'm saying this, I'm not being really fair because I, I don't think I've ever read a Tom Clancy novel, so I really don't know. But I, I've read a couple John Grishams and they're, they're probably fine. I mean, I read them when I was younger. Who knows what I'd think of them if I read them as an adult. But Michael Crichton is not Stephen King. And... You know, I've thought this as I read Night Shift. I've thought this as I read, especially as I read Carrie, which is a phenomenal fucking novel. Uh, as I read Misery. But also as I'm reading different seasons. And when you read a novel like Jurassic Park or Sphere, the idea is, is well, I should say that the idea for Jurassic Park is very good. Sphere, not so much. Uh... Maybe it was cool at the time. I have to believe. I certainly know that since then, the same, the identical subject matter has been handled much better. I have to believe almost prior to that it was handled much better also. Um, but you feel Michael Crichton, you feel the fringe of their ability, and you don't feel, like you feel good idea, but not very good execution. With Stephen King, it doesn't matter what, you know, you're reading his novels or his short stories, even if, they're not pitch perfect throughout, even though there are moments where he may insert a, a sort of like forced feeling of suspense or um, some kind of suspense trope, or he may hang on a metaphor or, an, or he may stretch an analogy or, an, or a metaphor a little too thinly. And there's a, you know, there's some awkward moments when you read it. There's no doubt about that. And I've even said, as I read Stephen King, the, the, the most pleasure you have reading him is the buildup. And a lot of times, even the exposition, 
when we're getting to know the characters, as the tension is building. But once the payoff or the supposed payoff comes, it's, it's, it's I would say, frequently anticlimactic. Um, once the monsters kind of come out of the closet, it's just, it's always a little weird. And maybe that's just a conceit of horror and science fiction, is once the aliens with eight eyes show up, it's just, it can never be as scary as what you're imagining, right? I mean, I think that's why The Exorcist is so successful, is it's it's sort of a psychological tear, right? Um, one example, you know, the most famous stories of different seasons are going to be Shawshank Redemption, because it was turned into a, a great film. Apt Pupil was also turned into a movie, movie which I don't think did very well. I, I remember seeing it. I don't remember if I liked it, because when I read the story this time, it was like reading the story for the first time. I, I had no clue what was going to happen, so it felt new. So the movie didn't have that great an impact on me. The third story is called The Body, which the, the movie Stand By Me was based on, which is also a very good movie. Um, the final story, which I never read when I was a kid, is called The Breathing Method. And it's like Turn of the Screw in that there's a frame story, which many of you will know, some of you may not, but a frame story is just you know, some novels are stories within a story. They're stories about someone telling a story. Um, you know, I'm thinking like Arabian Nights is probably like the, I don't know, the archetype or, you know, Arabian Nights is about Skirazad telling stories each night. So, uh, but they, so they sort of go into the story. Does that, does that make sense? They sort of telescope into the story. So there's a frame story about of in the breathing method of a guy who happens to join some gentleman's club in New York City that's very sort of mysterious and and people sort of come together and have drinks and shoot pool and and uh it's a pretty you know developed frame story about this happening and when he goes there he happens to see one of the members tell a story called the breathing method which is the story within a story that we get to hear. The entire thing is is exceptional. And as you're reading it, you really feel, oh, I feel it especially here, but on every page that Stephen King's right, Stephen King writes, there's something here that Michael Crichton wishes he fucking had, which he just doesn't have. You could say that Stephen King is not Dostoevsky, that's true. But even what you get with Stephen King that you may not even get with Dostoevsky is you feel a fire fucking... There's a furnace that is fucking burning in everything that Stephen King writes. You feel this generative force that these stories are just kind of spilling out of him. You know, I've talked about the some psychological influence of creativity, and I've talked about this, you know, with pop music is a perfect example. And maybe I'm, I'm equating these two because King is a popular fiction writer. <clears throat> But you have people who write pop music, and I believe most of the time you can tell when something is inspired or sort of just written for hire. Um, and I think if you're a creative person, you probably feel this in your own life, which is if you're a songwriter and you're writing popular songs, you could sit down and write things that qualify as songs all day in that they have three or four chords and they have a verse and a chorus. But if they didn't actually come to you in a moment of inspiration... I think they're just going to fall a little bit flat for the most part. I think, I think that's what, I think that that is what is going to happen. When you read Stephen King, you feel not only because you know he has a fucking exhaustive output of stuff, but you feel the playfulness. You feel on every page that King is one of these people who can just sit down and 
the stuff pours out of them. And I think you feel this with Elmore Leonard, too. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy as well as, just because I'm thinking about Russian literature, are, are geniuses in that not only do they have the ability to create high art, you know, uh, Crime and Punishment, for example, you read it, and it's a fucking great story. It's exhilarating. You get drawn, you sort of lose yourself in the narrative. And it is also high art. You're reading it knowing, like, this is the highest form of writing. You don't get that sort of exalted prose you want to worship at when you read Stephen King um, or Elmore Leonard to the same effect, but you get something else, which is, and, and it's not just fast, fast food or empty calories, you know, uh, Stephen King will sort of be self-deprecating and, and he'll talk about his own work as if it's, as if it's this kind of fast food thing. But I, I think that's bullshit. I don't think that's true at all. I think that is true with Michael Crichton. You go, oh, here's a bunch of empty calories because you feel, you know, you bite into it as you're reading it. You know, you bite into it as a reader and it, it feels fucking like DiGiorno's pizza. You know, um, I really don't get that with Stephen King. I mean, I read it and I think this is genuinely good. And I, I think I think what solidifies it for me is most authors could look at Sphere and go, I don't want that in my output. I cannot think of an aspiring writer who would read a novel like Carrie and not be happy to take credit for it. Does that make sense? Like, I read The Da Vinci Code, and that to me is a, is a sort of book by numbers. It qualifies as a book. It walk, talks, and, you know, quacks, and, or whatever the fuck like a book. But it, to me, it's sort of like, sometimes I think of things as like being this alien simulacrum. Like, if you were abducted by aliens, and they wanted to create, oh man, crazy that I'm saying this since we've talked about Slaughterhouse-Five. But I've used, I've, used, I've used this example for years. But if you were ever abducted by aliens and they wanted to create a simulacrum world for you that made you feel like you were at home, like Solaris, I don't know if you've ever read that book or seen that movie. Um, if you haven't, don't see the Tarkovsky version. See the, the, the George Clooney, the Soderbergh Clooney version. I think it's actually better. But if, you, if they wanted to create a simulacrum world for you, it's like they would miss the sort of vital essence of what something was. They would be able to, to if you had pizza, they would be able to, it would have cheese and sauce and dough and bread, but it would miss a magical something, right? Because it was created by somebody who was observing the creation of it at a distance, right? And so there are people like Dan Brown or Crichton that you read and you go, this person has created a novel and they spent a lot of time on it and I don't want to diminish it because they clearly have things like fortitude and the type of talent that, and, and, and even creativity that gets these things done, but when you read Stephen King, it is palpably different. You know, it is the real fucking deal. You know, we've talked about being in the presence of art. And it's not that, again, it, I'm using Dostoevsky over and over again. It's not that King is Dostoevsky. But Stephen King is the real fucking deal. And when you read him, you're hit with the spirit. And I think the thing that is surprising for me, or maybe it shouldn't be, I was going to say... The thing that's surprising for me is when I read King, I believe that like you get hit with the fucking spirit. I think that's why he's been so successful. And I was about to say I'm surprised because a lot of times, like a Dan Brown or something, when something really gets absorbed into the popular culture, most of the times you poke it with a stick or you poke and prod it a little bit and you find it's kind of bullshit. You know, like Da Vinci Code. 
entertaining enough, but it's not good. It's good. It's going to disappear. It's not a book that's it not. It may be an artifact of a very specific time in our culture that was a phenomenon, but it's going to disappear. Um, you know, it's like. I don't know. It's like Mozart died a pauper, right? Or is buried somewhere in an unmarked grave. And there are plenty of people who are around uh, the time of Mozart who were incredibly famous that you and I don't know. <laughs> right. And so there was a time where it maybe when King first jumped out of the box, you know, his first novel was a smash. I think his first, I mean, he, it, it, all of his fucking books got turned into movies right out of the fucking gate. Right. And I bet there were people that were just kind of waiting for him to disappear. But he didn't. And in the last five years especially, maybe even longer, he's had a fucking huge renaissance. And it doesn't mean that everything, every movie that gets made is good. Most of them are probably garbage also. Like, if you see It, first of all, the original version that people used to fucking uh, romanticize about was fucking dog shit. The opening scene with the gutter and the boat and they float Georgie, that shit was fucking phenomenal. If that was a short film, <laughs> that'd be fucking perfect. Now, the the, the other, uh, you know, six hours of the fucking original miniseries are fucking dog shit. Um, the movie, the new movies are not fucking good either. Uh, there's a few jump scares, but they're fucking shitty movies, especially the second part is really bad. I watched it recently. Um, but there's something about King that feels inevitable you know he just feels like the man for our fucking generation who is just touched by a gift and he doesn't run out of ideas and he keeps fucking creating and it's just interesting for me to feel that way about Stephen King one because he's a popular writer but I also think of Elmore Leonard this way which is when you read Elmore Leonard you realize this guy has a gift that so many people in academia or people who fancy themselves to be you know quote serious writers will be dismissive of and it is because they dismiss this person that it actually betrays how superficial they are and how uh, uh, errant their perspective is, like how far off the mark that they are. You know, the people who would read King, and it's, uh, of course it's just my, my, my personal opinion, but the way I really feel about it is if you read Stephen King, and maybe it's not your thing, but if you dismiss him as a talent, or if you read Elmore Leonard and you just dismiss him as a talent, I feel like you are incredibly miscalibrated. You know, it's like there are some things that are just not up for debate. And for me, that feels like one of them. And I'm not saying that King is perfect, and I'm not saying there aren't some stinkers in his output, and that there are periods that are better than others. But there is a spirit that moves through Stephen King. You know, not the spirit, maybe, but a spirit that moves... You know, if there's, like, God and his holy host, like, a minor saint <laughs> a minor saint moves through Stephen King. You know, and I would say maybe even a higher saint, uh, an archangel, archangel, what are they called? Moves through Elmore Leonard. But there is a fucking... A spirit moves through Stephen King. It's actually... I'm actually thinking of The Exorcist now. Um, if you've seen the movie, you probably remember it. It's also in the book, too, where... Uh, Father Karras is sitting across from the demon, or Reagan, once they're possessed, and says, uh, you know, are there more of more than one of you inside Reagan? And he says, yes. You know, it's not that she's possessed by the devil, she's possessed by a devil. 
uh, Pazuzu is the name of the of the demon. But that, that's a fascinating idea, and I think in some ways it's what gives the exorcist its power. It's not the devil that's possessing her; it is a devil. Um, you know, a sort of uh, uh, a fraction of this de- of this uh, of the demonic power, right? Almost like a, a meteor, something that could hit you. You know, it's not an asteroid that's hurtling toward the Earth and going to kill everybody. It's like a meteor landed on your fucking house. It's just small enough to be believable. Does that make sense? You know, it's not the rapture, it's a rapture. There is a spirit, (laughs) there is a spirit that moves through Stephen King, and there's definitely a spirit that moves through Elmore Leonard. Anyway, um... I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, right now I'm reading Dracula. I started reading that the other day. I'm about halfway through it now, and it's fucking really good, too. A lot of horror recently. I don't know what that's about. But it is funny, you know, I've talked about this with the I Ching, but, you know, there are times where things seem to link up. And maybe that's to be expected, because I'm spending a lot of time sort of around horror, but it's... I'm just... It's interesting to see things connect, you know? Like, you read Carrie, and it's sort of an epistolic novel, and then you're reading Dracula, and it's an epistolic novel, and you realize, I, I, I have to believe that Stephen King was, you know, obviously inspired by Bram Stoker because he's writing in the same genre, so that feels inevitable. But I also mean structurally. Um, there's something about, you know, epistolic novels are kind of weird, <laughs> you know? Um... And I guess in some ways I'm thinking about Slaughterhouse Five because it is also a narrative that's told out of order. But like with a novel like Carrie, that's epistolic, you kind of know what's going to happen because it's people writing about past events. Um, you sort of know what's going to happen, and it's sort of an interesting way to tell a story because you think, well, you don't want to spoil the ending. But I wonder if there's sort of a decision based on craft, which is like, in some ways you have to maybe not give them the ending, but kind of point what the novel is going to. Because if you've done your job right, it's probably an interesting way of telling your audience, you know, uh, if you're doing your job right, you're saying, this is good, but it's not as good as what's coming, so keep reading, right? Uh, as 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 good as what you're reading is now, it's not as good as what's coming, so fucking stay tuned. Don't change the channel. But then you have to deliver, and Carrie does. But, um... But uh, how does that relate to Bram Stoker? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because I'm thinking, you know, the next novel I have to read if I'm going to read Stephen King stuff in order. Uh, And I guess I'm reading the novels in order. Well, even that's not fucking true because I read Misery. But I think I'm going to start reading the novels in order. And uh, the next one up is Salem's Lot, which is also... uh, I don't know if the novel is epistolic, but it's based on a short story. Now I know why these things are coming together. It's based on a short story from Night Shift. Uh, I don't know if it's an expansion or... What came first, necessarily? I have to believe the short story did, but on a short story called Jerusalem's Jerusalem's Lot, which is also epistolic, and uh, you know, it's about vampires. Uh, uh, I think Salem's Lot, the novel, is more specifically about vampires. But the point is, is that, is that it's epistolic, and I think I have to believe that he took that structure from uh, from Dracula. Um, but anyway, I think I'm just trying to say it's weird to see things linking up that way. You know, you go through life and you feel like you're just sort of taking things as they come and just sort of pursuing your interests. But, you know, maybe it's just what comes from sort of pursuing a genre or, 
you know, you're going down some lane as you start to see how things are sort of linked up. But it feels, I don't know, it feels kind of spiritual. But I guess one thing to be cautious of is I, I, I think we've talked about this also in terms of, you know, it's easy to feel like you're having an epiphany or that there's some spirit moving through your life when things start to link up because, one, you're drawing those connections yourself. But you also don't know, especially now in our technological technological age, you're not sure you know, you think there's a spirit moving behind your life. You think God is putting these things in front of you, but really it's just the fucking algorithm. You know, someone, some, one very smart person in a room somewhere uh, devised an algorithm to keep showing you things to keep you engaged and keep you watching. You know, so you start to think, man, I feel like all these disparate things in my life are starting to come together in very magical ways. It's an algorithm that's looking at your viewing habits and trying to show you more of the same things. You know, my brother keeps recommending this podcast to me called, uh, it's called Rabbit Hole. I think it's from NPR. I listened to the first episode, it's very interesting, but it clearly talks about this. And I think, I think the arc of the, of the podcast is a, is, a, is a guy who sort of fell into the alt-right, and who knows what the, the culmination of that is, but... Uh, you know, I've talked about people I know in my life who have sort of had a weird sea change in their political perspective, you know, and they've become sort of members of the alt-right. But as you think about people who, like, how does someone get into Flat Earth or how does someone get into QAnon? It's probably just a little bit, you know, they get a little taste, their interest uh, sort of makes them take a little bit of nibble out of one thing. But as they sort of look at more, maybe at first it's just for entertainment, but as they see more, it starts to... the you sort of, maybe the, the walls start, start to close in a little bit. And your viewing habits become a little more, as YouTube is showing you more and more of what you're clearly already watching, it's like you feel, you feel like that's what's available, right? That becomes your reality. And, of, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the analogy of an echo chamber is kind of a tired one. But you know what I mean? You just, the walls start to close in and, and the same reverberations are just kind of coming back and forth. And so you think, that's the world. Your input is saturated with one single point of view, and you become convinced of it. For some reason, I'm thinking about love bombing. Have you ever heard that phrase? It was used, you know, when they've looked at cults, they've said, when you think about cults and people who join join cults and people who get evangelized to religions or inculcated in certain religions, it's very easy to think that stupid. it happens to stupid people. You know, when we see people who get sort of sucked into Scientology or to some doomsday cult and go down to French Guyana and fucking drink the Kool-Aid with Jim Jones, it's easy to think, well, those people are stupid. I'm not, I'm not as gullible as they are. But when they actually look at the psychology of people who join cults, they identified this practice called love bombing. And it's not something that people are consciously doing. Although I think, I think on, you know, when we think about these evil institutions like the Catholic Church or Scientology... Someone at the top making decisions somewhere has to fucking know that it's all a bunch of load of bullshit. But I think the insidious part of all these organizations is they're actually operated by people who think they're doing the right thing. But when 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 you look at it from sort of a a detached, dispassionate perspective, you can identify this practice called love bombing, which is you bring someone new into the organization and you provide them with something that they just don't have anywhere else. You just make them feel important. You make them feel like they're their center... uh, of some, they're at the beginning of some life-changing experience, and what they stand to gain is all the love that they're getting from the congregation. You know, I spent a lot of time with the Mormon church, and they, they want to hang out with you all the time. 
and they want to incorporate you into their events and they want you to hang out with them and they they want you to meet their social circle and they want you to start coming to their barbecue every week. And it's not that they have a malicious intent, but that's how they were brought. That's just the values of of the culture. But what happens is you provide someone with a family, you provide them with a social structure, and you give them something that they can give themselves to. And it's not the religion necessarily. You know, concurrent with all that is the indoctrination into the dogmas or whatever the religion. But really you're you're sort of taking over their life. You're giving them something that they can give themselves over to fully. So part of it's religion, but part of it is being a social structure. <laughs> you know, and in cases of like cults and stuff, it's once you move onto the compound, now we're your residents. Uh, we may pay you a, a bullshit fee, like you think of the Sea Org in Scientology. Maybe we'll p- pay you s- slave wages. But basically, you come to depend on us. And as you give more and more of yourself over to us, it begins with love, but as you give more and more of yourself over to us, the walls close and you literally become trapped um i bet if you looked at the trajectory of like older courts older cults pre-internet era i bet the arc looks very similar except instead of the uh uh you know instead of giving your life over to it it's just that's what we're consuming that's what you're consuming all the time in terms of your information and your entertainment Anyway, I'm sort of, I'm looking off here into the horizon here in my room, you know, as I sort of speak and I talk, I, I sort of catch myself looking off into the distance somewhere. And I've mentioned I've been filming these and I don't watch them because <laughs> I can't, I mean, most people can't stand to look at themselves, but I have, I have gone back a couple of times and just, I'll look at little clips and I'll think, what the fuck am I staring at? Well, I'm just staring off into space, but it almost looks like I'm staring at a monitor of myself that's somewhere, you know? Um, like I've said this with the Chris D'Elia podcast, which look, me too. I don't fucking know about the guy, but, um, his podcast was, was, uh, very, uh, inspirational to me. And I, 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 I love his podcast. When you watch the video of it, you can tell he has a monitor somewhere because you, you see him not only looking at himself, but flexing for it also, you know, he sort of like he's, he has a nice physique and maybe he caught a glimpse of himself and, like, I used to know this guy who I used to work with who was, uh, you know, a nice guy, not very physically fit, but you could tell he was just kind of insecure about his physique, and if you ever put your hand on him, wherever you touched, he would flex, you know? If you touched his arm, he would just, like, flex his bicep, and not, like, in a full curl, but just as being, like, self-conscious, you know? Um, you see a lot of that with Chris D'Elia. Uh... Uh, you, I even see it now with all the Zoom conversations that we're having, you know? Like, when I record this podcast and I do the video element, right now, if you ever see this video, you'll see me looking at the camera. But I don't see myself. I have my computer set up in such a way so that I don't see my image. Otherwise, I'd be too distracted. I think about that when I watch, like, people who are doing uh, late shows, like David Letterman or Jay Leno. Um, when you're in those studios, which I actually, I saw a taping of the Jay Leno show one time. Very interesting, but you see that there are monitors everywhere so that if you're actually sitting on the couch, you can see yourself. You can see what camera has cut to you. And part of that is practical. You just want to be aware of what camera is on you. But if I, was, if I were ever on those shows, I would ask before coming out, like, hey, can we fucking put blankets over the monitors? Because the last thing I want to do is fucking catch my image. I, I don't want to catch my profile as I'm looking to Jay Leno and see that I have a double chin you know, or like it would just fucking throw me off completely. 
I probably wouldn't be able to have a conversation as I, as if I were to catch myself. I mean, even thinking about it now, as I'm thinking about my physical appearance, I feel like I'm becoming less cogent. I literally feel my mind coming off the rails a little bit. This feels like a very manic episode. <sighs> Part of me just wants to take a couple of deep breaths and just sort of... <laughs> I, actually, I saw Matthew... Uh, you know, I don't know. I saw Matthew McConaughey on this fucking Instagram video. Matthew McConaughey is like... You, it's hard to fault the guy because he does a, a fair amount of good work. He's done a fair amount of dog shit movies too, but he's he's totally serviceable. He's a good actor. But he's talking about this scene in Interstellar, which is... Um, actually, Matthew McConaughey's done a lot of good work, but um, he has this scene in Interstellar where he cries, and he was explaining how that is that was done in one take. But he he talks about the process on some podcast, some video podcast or something that he does, and he talks about like sometimes before the take, I just have to get ready to receive the gift. And it's one of those woo woo things where it comes out of his mouth. I fucking hate him for it, but it's probably true. I both loathe hearing Matthew McConaughey saying it probably because he's a beautiful man I loathe him saying it but I also feel like that's something I would feel <laughs> that's something I would tell myself and think and probably put into practice but also never talk about so as I'm sitting here realizing how talking how fast I'm talking I think slow down receive see what comes to you Especially when I record this podcast late, which it is tonight. I had to do a lot of work today, so it's... Right now, it's two hours before the podcast goes live. Thankfully, I've, I've, I've buffered it so that I... You know, it's not like other weekends recently where I have to stop recording and within 30 minutes upload the podcast. Which I think the... I think the you know, I think the last... Well, I'm not supposed to be going into meta-commentary about the podcast, but um, it's been a challenge recently. I'll just put it that way. But... Um, but, uh, and of course, that's why we don't talk about it, because it fucking derails the conversation. Um, but I think when I record them late, there's a part of me that just wants to fucking get things out, and I'm so scared of having it. And because there's no time to redo it, I'm so scared of it um, being bad. I'm scared of things stopping in their tracks that I just fucking, I just go, 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 go. I just try to fucking stoke that furnace and just fucking talk before I shut up. <laughs> Hmm. But maybe we should just take a moment to receive. Actually, in my therapy, excuse me, in my therapy, I was talking about this. Uh, thankfully, my last therapy session was like a wall-to-wall talking session. Those are the best, you know, where you feel like you're just kind of in it. But within the first like 10 minutes, I sort of fell into this reverie is that the right word i just fall into a silence and normally my therapist lets me be quiet for anywhere from like five to ten minutes and then goes where are your thoughts going and when you've been i mean therapy is a relationship and once you've been talking to the same therapist for a decade you and you you obviously know what's coming so i even said you know i'm i'm trying to anticipate your question you know we had been silent for a while i'm, I'm anti- I, I said i'm anticipating you asking asking me where my thoughts are going and i'm trying to use that as inspiration to start talking because even though i could be silent for 8 to 10 minutes once 
they ask me, where are your thoughts going? I just spill with whatever I'm thinking about. And it usually leads to something. But I just thought it was funny acknowledging that in my therapy. You know, I'm anticipating your question about to ask me, which I know is coming. And she laughs because I think she was just probably just about to say it. Um, sort of one of those self-aware moments that we have in therapy sometimes where we acknowledge that we're just two people who, um, you know, therapy is funny. It's for some reason I'm thinking about when I was living in Arizona, I used to go to Blockbuster <laughs> all the time. And I know it's, you know, I don't know, people people talk about Blockbuster like there's something fucking like funny about it, which is fucking bullshit. If you're making jokes about Blockbuster, stop. You're not funny. Everyone's fucking doing that. But I used to go to Blockbuster all the time. And there was one right around the corner from my house. And there are other things like this in my life also. But for some reason, this stands out as as an example of a, of a place that I would go all the time and see the same people. And there was never any familiarity between us. They never once demonstrated that they remembered me. And of course they did. But they hated their jobs and did not want to engage with people on that level, right? Um, which makes perfect sense. Um, not that I want to draw too many comparisons <laughs> between that and therapy, but there is something about therapy where it's a strange relationship. I mean, I have spoken with the same person every week for the last two years, and for three years of that, it was twice a week. You know? I don't know how to add those numbers up, but, you know, there are 52 weeks in a year. For three of them, I did two, uh, twice a week, over 10 years. That's a lot of time. And so I've spent more time talking to, to this person than most people in my life for the last decade. You know, um, uh, even people like my girlfriend. You know, I've been with my girlfriend for four years. And yeah, we spent a shit ton of time together. So yeah, we probably have surpassed my therapeutic relationship in terms of hours clocked. But, you know, I'm not talking about the quality of the relationship. I'm literally just talking about time. And yet, I have said more to this person than I have to most people ever in my history. And yet, when we get together, I don't want to say there's a superficiality because that's not it. But it's a very, you know, therapy, you know, I talk about it as a relationship, but it's a very certain type of relationship and it's very one-sided by its very nature. I know very little about my therapist, and that's fine with me. <laughs> I mean, I almost, and this is very presumptuous, but I almost think people who need to know things about their therapist are eager not to talk about themselves. But I think therapy has to function in a way where, you know, you know we talk, they talk about tr- projection and transferences if these are bad things. I don't know that they always are. I think it's, you know, I've sort of reflected on who I think of my therapist as at different times in our relationship over the last t- 10 years, And I've thought in that time, they are kind of who I think of them as, is whoever I need them to be for me at that time. Sometimes it's parental. Sometimes it's as a boss. Sometimes it's, uh, well, I was going to say as an enemy, but that's too heavy handed. But there is, there is kind of an adversarial part to it, but I, I mean it in a good way. Like when I was hiking with my girlfriend, um, uh, in Aptos, we were down near this in Santa Cruz County. There's a town called Aptos. We talked about it recently. There's an area called Land of Medicine Buddha, which is attached to a, a Buddhist monastery or, or school or whatever the fuck you want to call it. And there's a, a along the trail they have these signs that are painted. And I'm going to butcher this, but the gist of one of them that stood out to me, and I thought I was thinking about this in the shower today. It's something like 
um, um, you could probably Google this and see what it really was, but it was something like, you know, anyone who I've done a lot for, anyone I've, I've, I've sort of helped or been a great service to who ends up doing me wrong, I will immediately adopt that person as my spiritual guru. And I think that's sort of a colorful way of saying, like, everybody teaches you something. It's sort of one of those bullshit things that you could turn into a meme and it sounds kind of deep, but it's actually not. But it's just like every moment is a teachable moment. Every experience is a teachable experience. Everybody can teach you something, especially the people who make you feel bad or who you're angry at. They often illuminate things about yourself, right? Like we say, the things you hate about other people are really the things you hate about yourself. I mean, I was actually thinking about this today as I was driving, strangely. I was thinking, you know... I think it was my buddy Matt Nathanson or maybe somebody else, but they posted this meme that actually maybe it was, I think it was a Christopher Hitchens thing. I've had this renaissance of Christopher Hitchens in my life recently, who I was enamored with growing up uh, in my, like in my teens. I was really very formative influence on me. But, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens was, was a contrarian. He was very anti-establishmentarianism and he was very anti-religion. And I think I saw this quote where he said, it is, uh, it's, and I'm paraphrasing him, but it's a certitude that anybody who speaks out against LGBT, he didn't use this phrase, but against gay rights, you know, secretly is gay, right? It's that sort of trope where how many times does the evangelical preacher who uh, screams fire and brimstone about gays and lesbians turns out to be caught in a motel room with a male prostitute smoking methamphetamine before we realize that these people actually hate themselves, right? Um... But I thought, what does it does it then follow that the people who are the most vocal about social justice issues are in fact themselves the most racist? And it's very easy to dismiss that and sort of laugh at it as like um, a sort of false equivalence. But I just have to draw on my own personal experience. Now, I believe there are many people who are anti-gay and lesbian because they're just towing the party line, right? And they're not gay and lesbian themselves. But I think the most the most vocal people about it probably are the people who are sort of staking their you know their whole thing on it probably are, and I have to be honest with you, I'm not talking about the people who actually get involved and do something and are actually involved in social justice. I'm talking about the people that you and I both fucking hate, who are these sort of uh, uh, tweet revolutionaries. They're sort of uh, they're sort of hashtag heroes, the people who the, the clamoring masses online. I think some of those people are, you know, the virtue signalers is what we call them. I think those people probably are secretly racist. You know, they're doing the whole Salem witch thing where they're, they're sort of calling you a witch before you can call them a witch. And in some ways they're so vocal because they know, they know that they want to like, like divert attention, right? Anyway, these are all ideas you've thought yourself. Um, I don't need to pair them to you, but what the fuck are we talking about? Well, I was talking about therapy. Yeah, there's been, I'm just saying that I frame this person as whoever I need them to be at the time. And that sort of is predicated on them not sharing too much about themselves. And it's not that when those moments come that you dismiss them, and it's not that you're purposefully secretive. But I think part of being a good therapist is you just don't share those things. You know, there may be things that you actively withhold because you don't want to share them. It's just good boundaries. Um, um, like, like... Um, like emotional honesty doesn't require that you are fully disclosing about every aspect of your life. 
you know, and I think uh, keeping those boundaries and demonstrating them in a, in a thoughtful way and in, in, in a way that acknowledges why someone would, would want that information um, is teachable also. But I do wonder sometimes if, if, you know, part of being an effective therapist is not needing to make space for yourself. And I can already think of a bunch of ways I would qualify that in terms of some, you know, you have to defend yourself. Um, uh, you know, I think you do have to protect, protect yourself from projections that are actually a vi- violation of your boundaries and, and that may in some way fundamentally misrepresent you in a way that's important to be experienced, right? Like you don't want your, uh, you know, you don't want your patient thinking you're an anti-Semite if you're not, um, And there might be things that your patient voices that you actually kind of need to challenge, right? Like you just don't want your therapy, you don't want your patient just sort of thinking that you agree with everything that they say. And we can't always control what people infer about our silence sometimes. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I think I'm just trying to underscore the idea that it's just funny to me that I've spent so much time talking to one person and yet they are relatively a complete fucking mystery to me. But I'm appending to that that I, I, I feel like that's what I need. <laughs> and that's what I want. <laughs> and I think one challenge to that is like, you know, uh, of course, I, I think of the people who don't like this fucking podcast and who, and who don't like me. But they would think like, I guess I'm, I'm already imagining somebody saying like. And in some ways, actually, I'm probably thinking of my therapist who, you know, anytime I've asked them questions, they've shared it with me and I think I think we both have kind of enjoyed those moments sometimes but um I don't know I think some people would hear that and think it's kind of um narcissistic or something you know narcissism is a word that people throw around around all the time now like they understand it (laughs) um when they really mean like uh like self-absorbed or something um but maybe that sounds a little narcissistic, but um, I, I guess I'm trying to say I think it's important. <laughs> anyway. Whew. Man, the dangers of, of, uh, the dangers of letting yourself receive, man. Maybe it was better to just keep talking about Stephen King and Michael Crichton. Punch the mic here. For some reason, I'm um, I'm thinking about uh, jam bands. <laughs> For some reason, I have this image of fish. You know the band Fish? Just sort of popped into my mind. I, it's probably because as I'm reflecting on Stephen King, I'm just thinking about my childhood, and I'm I'm, I'm sort of picturing myself. You know, the, my brother sort of. You know, he said it was some vehemence. I, I think he. You know, if I question about him he'd say he was joking but I remember I was telling him I said oh I, I was rereading or I was rewatching something and he said hey man why don't you look at some new shit or why don't you read some new shit but uh for me it's important I don't know it's important about um I don't know it's important to go back and look at these things you know um but uh I think I'm just thinking about you know as I'm reading these things for the second time I, I think about when I saw them for the first time and it just sort of orbits my bedroom when I was living in Tucson, Arizona. And I guess I'm picturing around that time I was also, I had this whole jam band phase. Which actually reminds me, excuse me, 
I was uh, looking through some paperwork as I was sort of applying for my UC app or finishing my UC applications. And I stumbled on this essay I wrote in seventh grade. That was like my Hal, my Allen, you know, the Allen Ginsberg poem, Hal. This was like my fucking manifesto poem about the state of, uh, 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 the state of the world and my place in it. And like, it's, it's fucking God awful. But I was actually thinking about it today as I was driving home. I was like, I should read that on the fucking podcast sometime. I know there is a podcast where celebrities, like, or maybe just people in general, read, like, their uh, middle school or high school diaries, and there's that sort of cringe factor. This is a cringe fucking fest. So maybe uh, I'll read that on the podcast. But, you know, a lot of this comes from that, that period of my life, right? And I'm picturing myself in my room. And I, there, I had this whole period where I was really into jam bands. And I say Fish because that's kind of like the band that, even if people don't know their music, that's kind of like, they're the totem of jam bands. My favorite fucking jam band was a band called String Cheese Incident. And I got to tell you, there's plenty of things I go back to in life and I listen and I say, oh, dude, of course I like that. Even if they don't have a lot of cultural currency or, um, or uh, like Stephen King is a good example. I know he's had a renaissance, but Stephen King is the type of author that you could say, oh, I read when I was younger and then you know, they just kind of get dismissed. And so maybe you just go off and you read Dostoevsky for the rest of your life and feel good about yourself. But if you go back and visit some of those things, you you completely understand why you like them. You know, you go back to movies or books or whatever it was, things that you read in your childhood, and you say, oh man, I had some, I was pretty fucking well calibrated. I had some good fucking taste. String Cheese Incident is fucking awful. I go back and listen to that music and I think, why the fuck did I ever listen to this band? And when I really think about it, I realize, oh, I, I didn't like this band. And, and I think, I, I mean, I think some of I knew that at the time, but as an adult, if I'm being honest with myself, I never liked that band. You know, uh, I was going to say, I don't know, I, I have, I'm thinking of one person in my life who I know who, every time they dated someone different, be, became a different person. You know, it's like they basically, they would meet someone, sort of take an inventory of their interests, and then went out and bought, the, like, everything that orbited that person's interest. So it was like, I'm dating someone who likes country music. They basically just go out and buy the country music repertoire and pretend that that's who they've been their whole life. Um, or maybe their next boyfriend is into hip hop. So they just do that. That's just like their area of interest now. Um, and I, I don't know that that's what life is, right? We sort of try on different costumes until we find out who we quote really are when really, I think it's just who we want to be. Um, uh, but for a while, there I had this whole jam band phase. And when I look about who I am and what's endured in my life and how I enjoy spending my time, I realized what I really enjoyed was tape trading. <laughs> Do you guys know about tape trading? If you're into jam bands or know anything about them, you, you fucking know about it. But for people who don't know, in jam band culture, in these sort of, you know, because the music is so improvisatory or the, the premise of, of, of a lot of the live performances that it's improvisatory... Uh, it started with the Grateful Dead, but there's this whole culture where they were very, um, uh, you know, they let people tape the shows. The, uh, they would let people audio record the shows. And so there's this whole repository and um, canon of these live recordings that get traded around and copied. And people would post their uh, their tape list online. And you could basically peruse these things and basically email someone and offer to trade tapes where you say, hey, look at my list. If there's a show you want, I'll make you a copy in exchange of your thing. And based on the rarity of shows and how the audio was sourced, you know, was it a crowd recording made with a microphone or was it a soundboard patch? 
You know, some of these bands would let a finite number of people actually patch into their soundboards. And, oh, was it recorded onto a mini disc, which was like the fucking thing for a while, which you may have to Google? Or was it uh, to a tape? Or was it, uh, you know, I don't fucking know. I don't know what the technology was at the time. Oh, and what were the microphones that were used and all that sort of fucking bullshit? But it became its own system of stuff. And that was the thing that I really got into. Right? Just creating, um, in the same way that, like, right now I'm doing this thing, which I, I've never done, but I, because I've been reading so much, I thought I should keep a list of what I, for the rest of my life, I should just maintain a reading list. And I should note the author, uh, the title, when I started it, when I finished it, um, you know, the genre, fiction or nonfiction, et cetera, and just a couple, couple brief comments about, you know, what I thought of the book. And by the end of your life, you, and I, I mean, it, it would be in, incredible if I had that from the time I started reading, but you know, presumably I'll live a long life. Even in the next 35 years of my life, that would be quite a list and quite an interesting, interesting thing to go back and look at. But that's what I wanted to build with tape trading. I just wanted to have a list of cool stuff. And my favorite part was just like looking at my list of tapes. I didn't listen to most of them. I probably didn't listen to 99% of the tapes that I had. And I probably had like 50 shows or something like that. All I wanted was the tape so that I could technically add it to the list, right? That's what I enjoyed. So I guess I was thinking about fish because I've, I've seen a couple fish videos. And of course, like YouTube, you watch one fish video, they want to show you 10 others. But it's like I was watching, like, you know, just f- at five minutes at a time, I was watching some performances of their videos and I thought, this shit's awful. Like, this is really bad. You know, Trey Anastasio, like, Fish is one of those bands that, like, Trey Anastasio, the lead singer, is a phenomenal guitar player. You know, each member of that band is very talented, but the music they make together uh, sucks. Or maybe it's fine musically, but they're, like, how could you have been making music for that long and, and, like, still write such shitty songs? Like, the songs themselves are god-awful. If you listen to a Fish record, it fucking sucks. They're fucking legitimately awful. But people who love them, and I'm thinking of my buddy, he would not hate me mentioning him by name because he fucking loves this man unapologetically. My buddy Jefferson Berge, who's a great musician that you should check out. Very funny. Very unlike any, you know, people have their clique of creative people. You know, I have always gravitated toward people who were not writing in the same genre as me. Like, I didn't want, like... I didn't just want a bunch of fucking doppelgangers. Like, I just like people who spoke to me and people I like who they are as a person. And Jefferson Berge is fucking hilarious. He writes these super crude songs that you're not going to be able to listen to around your kids, but you should check him out. He fucking loves fish. Like, uh, you know, they do these, like, live streaming events. That motherfucker always tunes into them. And every year he sees them. Or every year that they go on tour, he'll see, like, four or five or six or seven fucking shows. And it's like, I even though I pretended to like it for a long time, as an adult, I look at it and I don't fucking understand it. I don't know how you can be playing music together with those people for that many years and still suck so bad and have so many white people who love the shit out of you. Anyway, that's a conversation for another time. We got to wrap up here. Wow, man. Uh, I always say the same thing eventually. I don't know why I pretend I don't know how to end these podcasts, but I'll just say this. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
And if you're already a fan, take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why other people will also. That might convince them. You know, when I watch movies or I want to watch a movie on Netflix or something, I like, I look it up on Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Bolados, Rotten Tomatoes. I look it up on Rotten Tomatoes and if it has a good review, I watch it. Or, you know, I'll say this quickly before we go here. I was looking, I was, the other night I sat down to watch a movie at 11 o'clock at night and I had no, I I had no clue what I was going to watch. Eventually I spent like, I looked up at like 12.15 and had still not started watching something. I was still browsing for stuff. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about. We are inundated with choices so that we don't make any. It's, it's, it was the uh, perfect example of paralysis by analysis. I was actually trying to look for a streaming version of Possession. Zulowski is the filmmaker. Made this kind of weird movie called Possession that... A lot of people have seen, I think it's really highly regarded, but it's just very rare. It's not available anywhere online, which is insane. So anyway, if you got if you got a fucking tip on where to stream, or if you want to send me the DVD of Possession, the, the, the Zulowski film with Sam Neill, that would be fucking rad. But otherwise, um, yes, what am I trying to say? Rate and review the podcast because that people who have a passing interest, you know, might see good reviews and... And want to fucking listen, so that's cool. Yeah, but really, if you if you know one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Nothing, you know, nothing spreads or builds an audience like word of mouth. So if you like listening to this bullshit, send it to a friend. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to this particularly manic episode. Um, thank you for your time, and ciao for now. <laughs>